I'm very glad that, that we are able to do this, this Adventist history class and that um, as we study this class, we can, we can see how God has led um, his church in the past and we can recount some of the teachings, some of the principles that have been learned and we can learn those so that we don't have to go through those again. Also, um, today I apologize, I do not have any handouts for you. I do have um, this 15-page uh, paper that I wrote on this class today. And if you do the math, 15 times 50, it would be way too much uh, for me to copy for all of you. So hopefully I'll make this available online on Audioverse and, and you can find it there. Let us begin with prayer. Dear Father, we ask that as we study um, the theological development of present truth, that each one of us uh, come away with a sense of how, how well the foundation was, was laid for this church. And that, that uh, deep Bible study and prayer uh, were some things that, that were commonplace in the times of our pioneers. And it can be the same for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to just review really quickly with you some of the pioneer principles of Bible study. These are principles that they, that they held to um, and that they used when they studied the Bible. There are five of them. And these are principles that William Miller used as, um, to guide him in his Bible study. And later, other pioneers adopted them as well. The first one is, All Scripture is necessary and may be understood by diligent study by one who has faith. Principle number two, the Scripture its own expositor. Number three, to understand doctrine, all scripture passages on the topic must be brought together. Number four, God has revealed things to come by visions, in figures, and in parables. These must be studied together since one prophecy complements another. A word should be understood literally if it makes good sense. Otherwise, one must discover from other passages its figurative sense. Number five, a historical event is the fulfillment of prophecy only when it matches the prophecy in all its details. These principles are all built on the historical grammatical or the historical biblical method of interpretation that the reformers used and our pioneers used as well. In 1884, Ellen White wrote that those who are engaged in proclaiming the third angel's message are searching the scriptures upon the same plan that Father Miller adopted. Review and Herald, November 25, 1884. After quoting these five uh, rules that I just quoted to you, she added, In our study of the Bible, we shall all do well to heed the principles set forth. So these are the principles that they used to study the Bible. And let us go into now the theological development of present truth. Present truth is defined by certain truths in the Bible that are presently pertinent for us today and that these truths are central to the Adventist faith. And as we look at these, these truths today, we will see how central they are and how well the foundation has been laid for them. As, as uh, Norman discussed last, last week, 1844, um, October 22, there was the great disappointment when Jesus did not come. And people were scattered abroad. They just had no clue what to do, where to go. People had left their crops. People had left their work. 
And now they were, they were faced with a winter and they had absolutely no direction as to where to go. There was an editor, uh, his name was Apollos Hale. He distinguished four classes of Adventists or Millerites in those days. Class number one, those who deplored and condemned their past Advent experience and strongly objected to any further time calculations. They completely uh, did away with what they believed before. Number two, those who continued time setting, building their calculations upon anything they could find. That was group number two. Group number three, those whose confidence had been shaken so that they were afflicted with doubt. They just didn't know whether they should believe in God's word or whether they should just go into the world. They were just conflicted. Group number four, those who expressed confidence in the former calculations and felt that the predicted events had taken place. This is group number four. And this was the group that eventually laid the foundation for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. There were two major problems that they had to address right after the Great Disappointment. Problem number one, what was signified by the coming of the bridegroom if the parable, which is found in Matthew 25, 1-13, had its fulfillment in the seventh-month movement, and if the coming did not symbolize the second advent. Remember, they thought that the coming of the bridegroom was the time that Jesus would come to this earth. And if that wasn't the case, then what was signified by the coming of the bridegroom? They had to go and re-examine that parable again because that was the foundation for their faith. And the second one was, the second major issue was, what was the meaning of the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8.14 if the 2300 days had terminated on October 22? They felt that their time calculations were right, but what was meant by the cleansing of the sanctuary? If you remember when they read that under 200 and under 2,300 days, and then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, they believed that the sanctuary was the earth and God was coming to cleanse the earth. But, what did it, but God did not come on October 22, 1844, even though all the calculations said that, that he should come. And so what was meant by the cleansing of the sanctuary? So these were the two issues that, that they were wrestling with. And the subject of Christ's high priest ministry eventually provided the key to the, to the biblical solution of these two problems. And two new interpretations emerged from that. The first interpretation had to do with the coming of the bridegroom. And that's, they said that the, the coming of the bridegroom symbolized Christ coming to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary on October 22. And that the cleansing of the sanctuary revealed the nature of his ministry from that time on. And so there was a switch in Christ's ministry on October 22, and when he would finish his ministry in heaven, then he would come back to earth. That was the, the, the change that they, they, uh, they found after studying the Bible. Let's look a little bit into the bridegroom theme and how, that, uh, how the study of that developed after 18, October 22, 1844. One of the earliest interpretations of this parable was actually started the day right after October 22, 1844. Hiram Edison, Hiram Edison uh, was a Millerite preacher, and he was a, a leader in Port Gibson, New York. And he wrote um, of, this, of the experience that he felt impressed after prayer that a mistake had been made in the manner that Adventists had expected Christ to come as the bridegroom, but not in the predicted time. So he was thinking about this, and he said, After breakfast, I said to one of my brethren, Let us go and encourage some of the brothers. We started, and while passing through a large field, I stopped 
about midway of the field, heaven seemed open to my view, and I saw distinctly and clearly that instead of our high priest coming out of the most holy of the heavenly sanctuary to come to this earth on the 10th day of the 7th month, at the end of the 2300 days, or October 22, 1844, that he had for the first time entered on that day the second apartment in that sanctuary. And that he had a work to perform in the most holy place before coming to earth. That he came to the marriage at the time, in other words, to the ancient of days, to receive a kingdom, dominion, and glory. And we must wait for his return from the wedding. So that was this, this, um, this thing that burst upon his senses as he was walking through that field that morning, right after 1844, October 22, 1844. And Edson's interpretation was that the sanctuary in Daniel 8.14 was not the heavenly, sanctuary, was the heavenly sanctuary and it was not the earth as they had believed before. And so he placed the coming of the bridegroom to the marriage in the context of Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14 and related it to the coming of Christ as the high priest to the second apartment of the heavenly sanctuary. And so according to higher medicine, on October 22, 1844, the time was correct, the predicted time was correct, but what happened, the event that happened that day was that Jesus went from the holy place into the most holy to begin another phase of his ministry. That was his contribution to this, um, to this dilemma. There was another person, Enoch Jacobs. He wrote um, in December of 1844 in the Western Midnight Cry magazine. He alluded to the coming of Christ in the setting of the judgment. And he made a distinction between a pre-Advent judgment and an executive judgment at the second Advent. So this was his contribution to this discussion. Apollos Hale and Joseph Turner, they co-wrote an editorial uh, around the same time, and they gave more extensive treatment to this bridegroom theme and the, the whole parable. And they added another point of interest, the importance of keeping our garments they indicated that a change in God's Christ's work in the heavenly sanctuary necessitated a change in how God's people lived on this earth. And so there was, there was that contribution as well that was made. Ellen White in January 1846 um, had a vision published. And in this vision, she, she saw a place in heaven that was similar to the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary and described it in terms of Hebrews chapter 9 three and five, and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So she tied those two, um, those two issues together. And this vision, for the first time, confirmed the physical reality of a heavenly sanctuary. This is the first time that they realized that there was a sanctuary in heaven, and it was a, a real sanctuary. And in March 1846, another vision Mrs. White saw, Jesus as an intercessor for the people, stand, uh, sitting on a throne with the Father in the holy place of the sanctuary. Then both of them left their, the throne room in the, in the holy place and went to the most holy place. But what was interesting was that Adventists were to keep their garments spotless for a little while, and Christ would, uh, while Christ, for in a little while Christ would return from the wedding. And Adventists who had been deceived were ignorant of the view of the, of the coming of the bridegroom were described as being under the influence of Satan. That was a key vision at that time. And it is recorded in um, early writings. The other issue was the defilement of the sanctuary. How was the sanctuary in heaven defiled? 
can a sanctuary in heaven that where everything is perfect be defiled? Can it be, why does it need to be cleansed in heaven? And so um, there was a man, his name was Owen R. L. Crozier. He was one of the first to, to examine the dynamics by which uh, the sanctuary in heaven is defiled. And he held four points. He said that the, the sanctuary is defiled by apostate transgression, that is the type, by Roman and apostate Christianity, that's the antitype, confess sins placed on the sacrifice, that's the type in, in the Old Testament, and confess sins placed on Christ, that's the antitype. So he, he talked about how the sanctuary was, was defiled in heaven and how it needed to be cleansed. There are some uh, contemporary views at the time that contrasted with what the Millerites were starting to study and, and believe from the Bible. One of the views were, was uh, about Jesus' ministry in the holy place. In the most holy place, sorry. People believe that Jesus began his ministry in the most holy place after crucifixion. And that the most holy place is synonymous with heaven. Early Adventists came to believe that the earthly sanctuary was a type of the heavenly sanctuary. And that the heavenly sanctuary had two compartments, just like the earthly sanctuary. Holy and the most holy. And that Jesus, when he went to heaven, he went to the holy place. And he worked over there first. There is the issue where they talked about in the same most holy, uh, Jesus at the mo in the most holy motif, they talked about being at the right hand of God. And James White commented on this argument by saying that no one will contend that Jesus has been perfectly stationary at the Father's right hand literally for more than 1,800 years. Bates, uh, Joseph Bates advocated a similar view that in Revelation, Jesus is depicted as walking among the candlesticks, which is not only away from the throne because he's walking, but also that the candlesticks were in the holy place on earth. So there was a difference in where Jesus was. There is also a statement about within the veil. There was a dispute about what it meant by within the veil. And the contemporary um, interpretation was uh, to a reference of the veil before the Holy of Holies, implying that Jesus had been in that place ever since the beginning of his high priest ministry. However, Crozier dis disagreed, and he pointed out that, that there were two veils, or two one was a curtain, and that was to, from the courtyard into the holy place, there was a curtain. And then the next one was called the veil, which was going into the most holy place. And so, yeah, Jesus was within the veil. He was in the uh, holy place at the time. Then there was an issue about the scapegoat, and this was a big issue at that time. Many Christians believe that the scapegoat in the Day of Atonement ritual was another symbol of Christ. Crozier again strongly opposed this interpretation. The correct biblical inter uh, meaning of the scapegoat uh, is designated by Satan. And he gave eight points uh, to, to refute that, uh, to refute that uh, idea. And those eight points are very uh, fascinating, and I have them here, but we do not have time to go through them. So we'll, we'll pass through, we'll pass by them. But if you, if you go back and if you study his... Um, if you study his, uh, his eight points that he, that he brings up, it, it, is just, it is just fascinating to see how deeply perceptive the man was when he studied the Bible. And just from one verse, he could pull out so much out of it that actually logically made sense. And this was because of uh, studying and praying. Um, okay, I, I, can show, I can show maybe, maybe one point. <clears throat> uh, for example... Uh, uh, we'll, we'll do point number two. It is a scapegoat that is sent away from Israel 
into the wilderness, a land that is not inhabited to receive them. And if our blessed Savior is the antitype of that scapegoat, then he must also be sent away, not his body alone, but also the soul and the body. And for the goat was sent away alive, and not to or nor into his people, neither into heaven, for it is a wilderness, a land that is not inhabited. So when the, when the scapegoat was sent to the wilderness, it cannot be Christ because it was sent into the wilderness. Jesus was not sent into the wilderness. Another point that he brings out is that the goat received iniquities from the hand of the high priest and he sent it away. As Christ is the priest, the goat must be, some, the goat must be something else besides himself which he can send away. Doesn't that make sense? So just things like that, um, just common sense things, but it takes uh, perception, it takes the Holy Spirit to be able to look at that text and be able to derive these things that can completely refute um, these, these issues. Another point of note on the sanctuary doctrine, um, as, we, as we wrap up here um, about the sanctuary, was that in 1853, around the 1850s, the, some of the Millerites began to separate themselves into more groups, and some of them began to question the validity or the relationship between Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, the cleansing of the sanctuary and the start of the 70 weeks. And so there was that dispute over there, and Jan Andrews wrote a four-part exposition on the sanctuary in 1853. I highly recommend you reading that. It is a, it is a book that, that you just can't sit down and read. You actually have to have a Bible in order to, to reason with him, because every line almost has five or six Bible texts. That was the, the scholarly work of J.N. Andrews. And James White commenting on Andrews' work said, it explains the disappointment of the Avent people and harmonizes the position of those among them who are still waiting for their Lord with the past experience in their Avent faith. So he endorsed uh, that book as well. Another point about the sanctuary doctrine, that contrary to public opinion, Ellen White did not originate the sanctuary doctrine. Josiah Litch did in 1840 and 1842. Her most extensive treatment about the sanctuary appears after the 1880s. Um, so she was not the originator of the sanctuary doctrine. Another interesting point is that James White initially opposed the idea of a pre-Avent judgment that Joseph Bates had briefly expounded upon in a small work that he had published um, in 1850. Joseph Bates and James White were interesting people because these two men laid the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And at times, both of these men were ahead or behind each other in, in accepting a certain view. For example, uh, Joseph Bates be, uh, studied the health message, uh, studied health laws and decided to become a vegetarian 20 years before James White ever did. Another thing was, on the other hand, that White perceived that the third angel's message of Revelation 14 was preached after the Great Disappointment, some two or three years before Bates uh, caught on and came to that conclusion. However, even though both of them at times disagreed with their, their, each other's interpretation of the Bible, they were still friends, and they worked together. And in time, because they independently went and studied the Bible on their own, they came to the same conclusions. And that study of the Bible united them, the, the, united them together in the brotherhood of faith. The, the, the unity that they found, they found through the Bible and through studying the Bible. And that is what united them in the work uh, that, they, that they both accomplished together. 
And it was in 1857 that James White would accept the pre-Advent judgment, and he was the one who gave it the term investigative judgment. But initially, he opposed it. We move on to the next uh, pillar of uh, present truth, and that is the Sabbath. And this truth originated from the study of the sanctuary. While they were studying the sanctuary, they were able to, to look at the law of God because if, if sin is transgression of the law, then, and sin is to uh, be removed from our lives, and God, Jesus has come to take away the sin, and then he's going to cleanse the sin from the sanctuary, he's going to blot out all the sins from our book, then there has to be something about God's law. And James White once commented that, that if in, in heaven God's law is preserved, it must surely be preserved on, on, on earth as well. And so, in their study of the sanctuary, uh, God led them to study his law, the Ten Commandments, which inevitably led to the study uh, and the truth of the biblical Sabbath. The first recorded Millerite Sabbath keepers are Rachel Oakes Preston, T.M. Preble, and Joseph Bates. Rachel Oakes was a, was a, a lady who, whose witness led uh, an entire church in New Hampshire to start, in Washington, New Hampshire, to start uh, keeping the Sabbath, and in doing so, they became the first known Sabbath-keeping uh, church in the SDM movement in North America. T.M. Preble presumably heard uh, about the Sabbath from, from Rachel Oaks, and he went and he really studied it, and he wrote a track called The Hope of Israel. And Joseph Bates studied that track, The Hope of Israel, and he went back and he studied the Bible, and he began to observe the Sabbath independently of, uh, of everybody else. And he published a, a, an article called Seventh-day Sabbath, a perpetual sign. It was a 48-page uh, track, and that was read by James and Ellen White, who were recently married, and they began to keep uh, the Sabbath after they had studied the Bible and they had prayed about it, and they began to doing this. Now, the reason why I'm, I'm drawing this is because they chose to do so in August of 1846, and it wasn't until April of of 1847 that Ellen White received a vision from God corroborating what had already been established through Bible study about the Sabbath and that, that they should keep the, the Sabbath. During the early years after 1844, most of the believers were scattered and they began to have these Sabbath conferences. They had seven of them and they got together and they studied the third angel's message, the three angel's messages, and they also studied the Sabbath in connection to those and they began to draw and they began to get a unified direction after the Great Disappointment. And then there arose a question in the 1850s about the timing of the Sabbath. Seventh-day Baptists uh, believed in keeping the Sabbath according to the Bible from sunset to sunset. However, Joseph Bates held the position that the Sabbath started at 6 p.m. on Friday and ended on 6 p.m. on Saturday. And so he, he believed that. Some others believe that they held the midnight to midnight view. So Sabbath started at 12 midnight on Friday and ended at 12 midnight on, on Saturday. Still others believe that Sabbath began Sabbath morning and it ended Sunday morning. So Jane Andrews was called to answer this question. And he studied it out and he, he studied the biblical term from sunset to sunset. And he drew all these these, uh, these lessons, and he came and he presented it to uh, a group of believers that were there, including uh, James and Ellen White and Joseph Bates and others. And everybody in the audience, after uh, Jane Andrews was done, was convinced that Sabbath was from sunset to sunset, except for two people. 
Ellen White and Joseph Bates. They still held to the original view that Sabbath began at 6 p.m. on Friday and ended at 6 p.m. on Saturday. That evening, though, at the end of the conference, God sent a vision to Ellen White and said, No, Sabbath is from sunset to sunset. So anybody who says that Ellen White was uh, the founder of the Adventist Church, she was one of the founders. Was she instrumental? Yes, she was instrumental. But at the same time, the, the foundation of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was laid by Bible study and prayer. And there were times when people, very important people in the movement, Joseph Bates, James White, and Ellen White at times were wrong in what they were holding at the time. But they, when they were presented with the evidence, with the truth, with the Bible truth, they studied it out and they laid aside their own opinions and they held to what the Bible was saying. Unless God through vision said something else. And that is how it should be for us as well. We should develop a culture in which we study the Bible and we live our life according to the Bible and we base our beliefs according to the Bible. The problem is that half of us don't, can't even read the Bible for 20 minutes in the morning. It, but in order for us to to be able to reach the level that the pioneers reached and to be able to get to the depth of the experience that they reached is to be able to study the Bible intimately and really own it for ourselves. And so um, the, Sabbath, the timing of the Sabbath question was, was answered. They, they went on, Joseph Bates went on to draw, and he was really the, the principal um, uh, mover in, in, this, in this direction for the Sabbath. He drew... Uh, connections between Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14, 13, um, and so on and so forth to, to really bring home this, the sealing message of the Sabbath and, uh, and the, the message of, of how uh, creation and how the Sabbath have to do with the development of the Christian life. Ellen White, uh, a comment on, on the Sabbath, uh, Testimonies chapter, uh, volume 6, verse uh, Page 352 says, The Sabbath question is to be the, the issue in the great conflict in which all the world will act a part. Men have honored Satan's principles above the principles that rule in the heavens. They have accepted the spurious Sabbath, which Satan has exalted as a sign of his authority. But God has set a seal upon his re royal requirement. We are to show that, that it is of vital consequence whether they bear the mark of God's kingdom or the kingdom of rebellion, for they acknowledge themselves subjects of the kingdom whose mark they bear. That is one thing that she said about the Sabbath. Just a few resources for you to go back um, and, and study on your own. Um, if you read the Handbook of Seventh-day Adventist Theology, C. Mervyn Maxwell, uh, Dr. Domseed, and others have written very interesting and very easy to understand articles on the development of, of present truth and development of Adventist theology. And you can read over there. Also, um, another book by Dr. Domseed, the and I'm forgetting the title now, uh, the, the Theology and Mission, Foundations of the Seventh-day Adventist Message and Mission. Uh, that's another excellent book that I referred to um, in preparing this, this study. These are, uh, these are great resources for which you can go back and look at the Adventist history and look at how theology was developed. We go on to the next pillar of truth that was, that was developed during this time, and that is the state of the dead. Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, And the Lord God commanded man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou, must freely, thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou sh shalt not eat of it. For in the day thou eatest of it, there thou shalt surely die. 
And Satan, of course, said, did God say that you would die? And he caused doubt to come in. And guess what? God said, after they sinned, God said to Adam that because you have sinned, you will surely die. You will return to the dust from which you were created. And there are many, there are many positions on, how the, the, um, on the state of the dead. Uh, some of them originate from, uh, from Greek philosophy, which believed in the immortality of the soul, which believed that the soul and body were different, uh, were different entities and that the soul continued to live on or changed forms. However, the Seventh-day Adventist Church holds what is uh, sometimes called the conditionalist position on the state of the dead because this position attaches certain conditions to the gift of immortality. Immortality is not a given, it is a gift. And it is only uh, given to you as a gift through the acceptance of God's salvation through Jesus Christ and, um, and by living a life that, that Jesus wants us to live. And that gift alone and no inherent natural quality of the human soul is a condition for immortality. There are five different principles or reasons that have been um, synthesized to, to describe our position. One is that it represents the biblical view free of philosophical speculation and ecclesiastical tradition, particularly the tradition of the purification of the soul through purgatory. It was held by the early church re-emerging during and after the Reformation about the state of the dead. It affirms the familiar biblical portrayal of death as sleep, like unconsciousness, and rejecting the views of the soul as a continued existence after death. It supports the biblical teaching that immortality is not inherent in the nature of the soul or bestowed at death, but granted only at the resurrection from the dead. And position number five of this conditionalist uh, position is, it underscores the New Testament emphasis as Christ as being the only way to eternal life without consideration of any merits accruing to the soul following death. So these are the, the five conditionalist positions on the state of the dead. Also, um, Ellen White, in her writings, gave a very careful and thoughtful um, time to, to writing about this doctrine of the state of the dead. And uh, this... It goes on to say that, that she regarded the doctrine of the state of the dead as present truth, a, a central pillar of our faith that corrects popular and widespread uh, interest in spiritualism and is, uh, which is viewed as the first illusion that was, uh, that was spread by the devil in this world. Death as a consequence of sin is caused by humans' disregard to law. This is one of the things that Mrs. White brought out. And she talked about how that law, when it's violated, brings death. Whether it's the law of God, whether it's laws of nature, or laws of health. And that's why the Seventh-day Adventist Church has a very strong emphasis in living healthfully. And, uh, and that's why we are leaders in healthcare and in medical missionary uh, work as well, which will be discussed in a, in a future class. She also underscored the biblical understanding of soul sleep and that only God could awaken souls at the resurrection. And while this pillar of present truth hasn't been attacked as much from within Adventism, it will be attacked at the end of time. And the delusions that come from, from, this, uh, from attacking this, uh, from, uh, this pillar uh, can completely throw someone off. If you really look at the state of the dead, 
and then you look at a, a religion, uh, any religion in the world, for example, um, the, uh, Buddha's religion, what is it called? Buddhism. The, the idea of, uh, of reincarnation completely is done away with, with the state of the dead. You absolutely cannot be a Buddhist if you believe in the state of the dead. You understand how that goes? Many delusions of the, of the, of the time uh, that we have today are there because people do not know the correct understanding of the state of the dead. Going, going on, um, the state of the dead also is important because it helps us understand the salvation process. Dying to sin has something to do with, uh, there, there's, uh, with the state of the dead. You, if you don't have a correct understanding of what it means to die, what it means uh, when you are dead, uh, the biblical understanding of that, you have, it's very hard for you to understand what it means to die to sin and dying to that old nature that you have, which um, I will probably bring out in my, in my sermon later today. And I close with a text over here, which is, if anyone has any doubt on the Adventist position, it, it is found in this text on the state of the dead. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 5. For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. So that is, that is the, the central pillar of present truth, the state of the dead. The next one is the second coming. The second coming was so precious to the Seventh-day Adventist uh, uh, followers that at the time, the Millerite followers at the time, that when they formed together as a church, they included it in their name. Seventh-day Adventist. The Adventist stands for the joyful expectation that we have of Jesus' second coming. There's a difference between time-setting and Seventh-day Adventists. Time-setters are those who look to events of present events and they try to find meaning in those events that are not supported biblically. Seventh-day Adventists look for the coming of our Lord by seeing the signs as merely letting us know that times are at hand. And the motivation for us living differently uh, is not only because Christ's coming is close, but rather He's coming for us. That is the difference. There are, there are, many, uh, there are many things that we can talk about the second coming, I just want to uh, highlight five points about it. The manner of his coming. Remember there was a question uh, right after 1844 about the manner of the bridegroom coming. So the manner of his coming is that it will be personal and literal. It will be visible and audible. It will be glorious and triumphant. It won't be, um, it won't be the, the hidden secret rapture. It will be cataclysmic and it will be sudden. It cannot be predicted. And... Mrs. White goes on to say that many who have called themselves Adventists have been time-setters. Time after time has been set for Christ to come, but repeated failures have been the result. The definite time of our Lord's coming is declared to be beyond the ken of mortals. She goes on to say that those who think they must preach definite time in order to make an impression upon the people do not work from the right standpoint. The feelings of the people may be stirred and their fears are roused, but they do not move from principle. An excitement is created, but when the, the time passes and it is done repeatedly, those who moved out upon time fall back into coldness and darkness and sin. And it is impossible to arouse their, it is almost impossible to arouse their consciences with some, uh, with some great excitement. That is Review and Herald, August 16, 1887. So she talks about the dangers of preaching 
time with the second coming. The last one that we, uh, that we will discuss is uh, what we are discussing in our church today in the Sabbath school lesson, which is spiritual gifts. And one of those spiritual gifts is the spirit of prophecy. There is evidence from Jesus um, in, in Revelation. It says, Revelation 19 verse 10 talks about the testimony of Jesus. There's evidence from Joel for spirit of prophecy uh, found in Joel chapter 2 verses 28 and 29. There's evidence from Paul who talks about the gifts, um, who assures in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 6, and 8, 6 through 8, who assures us that spiritual gifts will be with the followers of Christ till the end, um, till the day he returns. There's also evidence, direct evidence from Jesus. In Matthew, he talks about uh, false prophets being, uh, coming up. And so if he talks about, he just didn't say that, that prophets will arise at the end of time. He said that false prophets will arise. And the fact that he designated false prophets, that means that there would also be what? True prophets that would arise as well. There are some things that are additional evidences of a prophetic gift. Number one, there are physical manifestations. Number two, the timeliness of the prophetic message. Number three, certainty and fearlessness of the messenger. Number four, elevated spiritual nature of the message. And number five, practical nature of the message. These are things, all of these things were found in, in Ellen White when she uh, was, uh, was declared to be a prophet of God. All of these things were, were fulfilled in her. There's also ways to test the, the gift. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 13 verses 1 through 5 says, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak to the law and to the testimony, they're not from God. Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 20 talks about that the prophets um, uh, would be known by their fruits. Uh, Deuteronomy 18, 21 and 22, Jeremiah 18, 17 through 10 is uh, talking about the conditional prophecy, that prophecies will be fulfilled, that, that whatever they prophesy will be fulfilled. An exception to that is, for example, Jonah, who said that, that Nineveh will be destroyed, but there is a condition there. If they repented, it would not be destroyed. However, when a prophet says something will happen, it does, because God said that it would, if the prophet is true. A statement from the General Conference, we are grateful to God not only for giving us the Holy Spirit, but also for giving us last, the last day manifestation of the gift of prophecy in the life and work of Ellen G. White. Her inspired writings have been invaluable to the church throughout the world in countless ways. This is Adventist Review, July 26th through August 2, 1990. We are blessed to have had pioneers such as uh, these that we have mentioned today who study the Bible and who base their beliefs on the Bible. They put aside all their presuppositions, they put aside all their biases, and they went to the Bible. And when they were found wrong, they were not humiliated, they did not react. They went back and they studied the Bible for themselves, and God confirmed their Bible study through visions of Ellen White. And it is to our advantage to hold on to these pillars of truth as we come to the end of time and to assimilate these principles into our life so that when the time comes upon us and the delusions are all around us, that we will be able to see Christ and we will be able to walk that narrow path and at the end of time be victorious at last. May God bless you as you study your Bible day in and day out as the pioneers did and that you base your life on the principles of Bible study and prayer. Let us pray. Dear Father, we ask that as we study the Bible, that you enlighten us and that you send the Holy Spirit to give us the impressions that you want um, us to have. We ask that, that we hold on to the pillars of truth that you have established in our church. 
and that even though the gates of hell try to prevail against it, that these truths will stand till the end of time. Father, we pray that these truths, not only are truths in the Bible, that they become living truths in us as well, and that, that you write your laws into our hearts and into our minds so that we are programmed to do what, what you want us to do by choice. We ask that you bless us this Sabbath day. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you very much.